Let's begin reading at verse number 28. And when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he was come nigh to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, and the which uh, you entering, you shall find a colt tied, whereupon yet never man sat. Loose him, and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, Why do you loose him? Thus shall you say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way, and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosening the colt, the owners thereof said to them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even nigh now to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said to him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said to them, I will tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Well, we know this is Palm Sunday, better known as Triumphal Sunday of the Lord Jesus Christ. I read a story some time ago about a, a young boy that was sick on Palm Sunday, unable to go to church. Mom stayed home with the boy. Dad went to church. The man came back home from church an hour or so later, and he was sporting a palm branch. And the boy was curious and said, Dad, what's the palm branch about? He said, well, uh, Palm Sunday. He said, when Jesus entered into the city, uh, they gave out palm branches they might honor him with. And today they gave out a palm branch. And the little boy said, ah, shucks. The only day Jesus comes to town and I stay home. <laughs> Sometimes perhaps we all feel that way, don't we, from time to time. We find out that Jesus in this text was ministering in Jericho. And we know that it was about a 17-mile journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. And Jesus now was taking his final trip, his final destination, uh, back to Jerusalem. We know that on that trip to Jerusalem would be his final journey. Our prophecy had been fulfilled. The prophetic word said that Jesus indeed would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, and it was true. And it also said that Jesus would die as the Savior of the world in Jerusalem. And that scripture was about to be fulfilled as well. Uh, the prophets have prophesied for many, many years about the coming of Jesus Christ. There were many that stumbled over that message. There were some that mocked that message. And there were many that gave a deaf ear to that message as well. But the prophets did something very ironic and very uh, very useful, I think, that, that you see often, often, oh, many times in the, in the Bible. And that is, if people would not listen to their words, if they rejected their words, if they misunderstood their words, or they flat out just had nothing to do with their words, the prophets would often do something to get their point across. They would paint word pictures by actions that they did. For instance, let me remind you in 1 Kings eleven twenty nine, we read, Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out to Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, uh, the Shalonite, met him on the way, and he clothed himself with a new garment, and the two were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was with on him, and tore it into twelve pieces, and said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give ten tribes to you. Here they had prophesied, if you don't repent of your sin, I'm going to destroy the kingdom. They would not listen to that. So now they simply, Jeroboam takes a cloak and he rips it into twelve pieces. They're watching this. 
And now what they've done out here in words, they're listening to and seeing through the very actions. I'm taking the kingdom. Ten tribes are going to go here, and the other two tribes are going to go there. They go, hmm, I think I get the message, what the prophet's trying to say. When we find Jesus Christ riding into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, Jesus basically was painting the same type of a picture uh, that these people would be able to see. They had heard Jesus teach. They had seen many of the miracles he performed, but yet they were not allowing that them to believe that Jesus indeed was the Messiah, God's anointed king. So with that background in mind, let's look at the triumphal entry today, and let's see what kind of a picture Jesus Christ is painting about himself that he could give to the naysayers and the unbelievers of the crowd that day. First of all, the triumphal entry was carefully planned. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey was not a sudden, a spur-at-the-moment impulsive action. Jesus did not leave such details uh, to the very last to fulfill. Some way, somehow, uh, he had made a plan. He had made a way whereby that he had told the people somewhere in Bethpage that I am going to be in need of this donkey. And when the disciples came by and simply said, the Lord needs it, that within itself was the password to allow those men to know Jesus had already planned this. The Lord needs it. They gave him the donkey, no questions asked. So we understand that the triumphal entry was carefully planned. Remember, uh, Jesus said early in his ministry these words, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Later, Jesus would say, then he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. Secondly, the triumphal entry uh, was an act of defiance and courage. Now, normally you do not put the words defiance and Jesus in the same context. But when you understand what the Lord was trying to say, I believe it would begin to make sense. Jesus was being defiant before the unruly crowd, being, de being defiant against the naysayers. He was defying the crowd of unbelievers. He was defying the, the, the powers of darkness that be, and he was doing it with stellar courage in that particular day. By the time Jesus made his way to Jerusalem on the back of that borrowed donkey, there was a Christ on the head of Jesus Christ. For the scripture said, now, hath, uh, now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that he, they might seize him. Why? To throw a party for Jesus? To celebrate? No, a thousand times no. They wanted to arrest him in order that they might kill him. In the natural, it would have been uh, much more sense had Jesus gone into Jerusalem by sneaking in uh, in a caravan, disguising himself, uh, joining a crowd, or even coming over a wall. But that's not the way Jesus did business. It would have been easy for Jesus to have gone into that city uh, some way hiding himself, sneaking in, in order to save his own life. But that's not the way Jesus did business. Uh, Jesus Christ said, I am going into Jerusalem, and I'm going for a specific purpose. I am God's sacrifice for the sins of the world. Uh, Jesus did not hide the fact of who he was and what he was doing. He went in that all attention might be upon him. He wanted to be center stage that nobody could miss him uh, going into Jerusalem during that land. Uh, he, it was such a way uh, to put the whole focus upon him. Now, 
Now here was a man with a price on his head. In the eyes of some, he was an outlaw. In the eyes of others, uh, he was a troublemaker. But he was deliberately riding into Jerusalem in such a way that every eye of every government official, of every religious leader, of every naysayer, of every disciple would see him and know exactly who he was. This same man that had made several attempts to prove by the works he did and by the words that he said the proof that he was the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the destroyer of sin, was riding into Jerusalem boldly for everybody to see him. Satan's worst nightmare was on the back of that donkey riding into the city of Jerusalem. In the face of opposition, in the face of unbelief, in the face of a hostile government, in the face of a terrible religion, in the face of satanic stronghold, Jesus defied the crowd and he boldly rode into Jerusalem with courage and with determination. Brothers and sisters, Jesus entered in Jerusalem as prophesied in the Word of God and what a triumphal entry it really was. Thirdly, the triumphal entry was a deliberate claim that Jesus was the King. Many of those in the crowd heard the words he spoke. They had seen the miracles that he had performed and they still refused to believe that he was the long-awaited Messiah. But when Jesus Christ boarded the back of that donkey and rode it into Jerusalem, he was painting another picture for anybody that had eyes to see and understand the truth of his character and the truth for his reason for being. Scripture was fulfilled right before their eyes as Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem. We all know the scripture in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Approximately 500 years after Zechariah prophesied those words, Jesus Christ fulfilled them as he rode into Jerusalem. Jesus painted a picture of the type of king he was going to be. Now understand in biblical days, the donkey or the ass as it's called uh, in Palestine was not the lowly beast that we know of in our country today. It was a noble animal. When a king got on a horse and rode into a city, he was saying, I am a king in the military fashion. I am coming to do battle with you. But if a king got aboard of a donkey and rode in, he came in as a king of peace, a lowly person, a man of peace, a one of notoriety. And yet he did not come in as a conquering military hero uh, that the mob wanted and the mob anticipated. So when Jesus boarded the back of that donkey and rode into Jerusalem, he was saying to them, I am coming as a king, not as a military dictator, not as somebody to overthrow Rome, not as somebody to kill the religion of the Jew. I'm coming as the king of peace. I'm coming as the savior of the world. I'm coming as your salvation. He made a bold statement. <clears throat> Fourthly, the triumphal entry was also an appeal. As he entered Jerusalem riding the back of the donkey, without the use of words, Jesus was appealing to these people as if though he was stretching his hands out saying, I want to be the peace of your life. I want to be the joy in your life. I want to be the salvation to your life. I want to be the destroyer of sin in your life. I want to be your ticket out of hell into heaven. That's what he was doing. He was throwing his arms out to be a king of peace and of love. Many didn't listen to his words during the earthly ministry, but friend, they were understanding the message he was painting on the back of that donkey that day. Before the hatred of men engulfed him, thank God once again he confronted them with the invitation of love.
Many people think Jesus is some tiptoe through the tulips, meek, panty-waist Savior. Let me tell you something, friend. Jesus was meek, but he was a long way from being meek. Being, he was a long way from being weak. He had enough power to destroy anything and anybody. The text I read, stop your disciples from praising you. I've got the power to cause the rocks to praise me. Meekness is not and was not weakness. He made an appeal. He knew. I don't know about you, but had that been me, I'd probably say, look at you all. Wake up. Shake up here. I've come to save you. You're going to hell. No. He painted the picture, and you all do with it as you want. Note the words in Luke 19. As he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. The king was indeed a man of sorrows, but he's a man of love. Jesus stops on that mountain and looks down and sees Jerusalem. And he sees people running here and running there, all the religious people, all the unsaved people, all of the political people, just scurrying back and forth, not understanding the day and the hour in which they were living. And Jesus takes the time to weep over Jerusalem, a city destined for judgment. Now, I don't know how you are. I'll tell you, I am. I'd probably been weeping that day, but I'd probably been weeping for me. I would know five days down the road, I'm going to die a terrible death on a cross. I'm going to die a death I don't deserve to die. I want to be ridiculed and humiliated and made fun of and, and, and die for people that don't like me and put up with people that don't care anything about me. That's why, how many have probably been the same way? But not Jesus. He knew his purpose for coming was to die for that city and for all the cities of the world. And yet we know he was making an appeal. Today is Palm Sunday. Taken from the Gospels where the whole city threw a parade for Jesus Christ. As he rode into the city, people threw out palm branches in anticipation of his coming. That was the word Palm Sunday. When we get it, the day marked the celebration where Jesus was worshipped and praised by many, but yet ridiculed and rejected by many more. This day's bittersweet. Because we know that five days from Palm Sunday where people were crowded around him, oh, Hosanna, 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 he knew that five days later he'd die on a cross and some of the same ones saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, would now be shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. Palm Sunday, he's the hero in the eyes of many. But isn't it amazing five days later how much hatred and how much venom can be spewed out upon someone that was so loved and cherished by so many? Isn't it amazing today how that people despise truth and how they ridicule truth and how they persecute those that share the truth. And today you're not sound in mind and you're, you're, not, you're not even American today if you don't think the way the left thinks. You don't think the way these think and the isms of this world. My friend, I'd rather think like Jesus Christ and be ostracized by the world than think like the world and be ostracized by Jesus. And that's exactly what's happening today. Palm Sunday is also called Passion Sunday. It's considered the first day of Holy Week and the Sunday before Easter. It commemorates the triumphal entry of Jesus to Jerusalem. And some churches, even today, you'll, they'll go home and they've given out palms and leaves off of date palms and twigs that are available on local trees to remember and to commemorate the day that Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem to be the Savior. 
The crowds responded by stretching out their cloaks. Take their cloaks off and put it on the road. While others cut down palm branches and spread them out on the road as well. Now understand, these two items, cloaks and palm branches, carry significance. We find in the Word of God, and we know through history, that many times a man would take his coat off and lay it in a mud puddle that a woman might walk across that mud puddle without getting her shoes all messed up. That's known as chivalry. But it happened in biblical days to be much more than chivalry. We find in the Word of God that somebody spreading their garments out before someone was an act of submission uh, to a uh, paid to royalty. We find, at my knowledge, only one place in the Word of God where this happened in the Old Testament uh, in 2 Kings 9. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment, put it under him uh, on bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Now we initially think of Jehu as a violent, wicked king. But remember, it was Jehu who had Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, killed. And Jezebel brought Israel down the porcelain potty, spiritually speaking. I brought him into idol worship. And also, she was the one that wanted to kill Elijah. But it was Jehu, that wicked king, who killed her and had her eradicate him off the face of the earth. And people would take their coat off and see him coming. And, and, and they, they acknowledged the royalty of this particular man. It's the only place in the Old Testament I can find where they did that. But did not Jesus do something analogous to that? As Jesus rode into Jerusalem as a good king, as a king of love, as a king of peace, as a king of salvation, they took their cloaks off to him to walk on. Why? Because he was going in and he was going to destroy the one that caused sin, which is Satan, and rob him of the authority of we the believer. And he was going to overcome sin by becoming sin and forgive sin by the way he died upon the cross of Calvary. No wonder they cast their garment before him. Because he did a phenomenal work. Destroy the authority of Satan over God's people. What a triumphal entry it really was. The people cut down branches to lay before Jesus Christ. Only John specifies that these were palm branches. Note what John also wrote in the book of Revelation. Interesting to me. Revelation 7. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John portrays the triumphal entry in Jerusalem as the picture of what happens in the heavenly Jerusalem when multiplied millions of people with palm branches are shouting out to the Lord. May I make a statement? Thank you. When God allowed His Son to die upon that cross, did God have any guarantee that anybody would accept Him? There was no guarantee that anybody would. Well, that was foolish, preacher. Surely would. Let me tell you. In spite of all the churches, in spite of all the preaching on radio and television, in spite of all the evangelists, in spite of all the missionaries, more people are dying lost than they are saved. I talked to our neighbors the other day, a millennial, uh, their millennial age, you will, the great kids, just had their first little baby. And we were talking about the things of God, and they said, you know, people in our venue, people that we associate with, if you go to church, you're laughed at and ostracized. You just don't do it. It's old, it's archaic, my word's not there. It's old, it's archaic, it, it, it doesn't fit in our life. The world looks at that. The world thinks we are the problem. But when God sent his son, did he have any guarantee that anybody would accept his son? No. 
Jesus came by faith and had faith that the people realized we are lost. And when you say, well, thank God, when I look in the book of Revelation and I see the multitudes waving the palm branches, I realize that God's death of his son was not in vain. Thank God if one soul has been eradicated and saved from hell, it was worth it all. I don't know about you, I'd have a hard time sending my son or my daughter or my grandkids to die for somebody that I love, let alone send them out to die for somebody that deserved to go to hell. But my God is such a God of love that he loved the Adolf Hitler. Uh, he loved the Osama bin Laden. Uh, he loves this and that. He loved me. He loved you. And he gave his only begotten son that we could be born again and one day escape this rat race called life and make it into the bosom of the Heavenly Father where there'll be joy and peace throughout all of eternity and we can wave the palm branch before the King of Kings uh, throughout all of eternity. We recognize royalty. We recognize joy. We recognize peace. And thank God we've embraced and accepted salvation. Let's look a bit further in our thinking this morning. The palm branches also cut back, call us back to the Feast of Booths. A feast designated to remind Israel of God's guidance out of Egypt. Remember that? The Bible said, in every observance of the Feast of Booths, the people would take on the first day of the fruit a splendid tree, branches of the palm trees, and boughs of the leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. At the triumphal entry, Jesus is the one celebrated who brings his people out of the captivity of spiritual sin, or literal sin, I should say, uh, which is like spiritual spirituality of Egypt. Let me say it again. At the triumphal entry, Jesus was celebrated as the one who would bring his people out of all the captivity and slavery of sin, the spiritual Egypt, if you will. Jesus was welcomed by the sound of the palm branches and shouts of rejoicing. But now the new feast of booths was initiated and the new feast of, the new feast of booth lasted seven days. Now get this. The Jews compared part of a day as a whole day. That's why Jesus was crucified on Friday, rose from the grave on Sunday, and they said that was three full days. The new Feast of Booths lasted seven days from the triumphal entry to Saturday, but the day after Good Friday. But what happened on the eighth day? The Feast of Booths, which is the eighth day, the Bible says, shall be a solemn rest. In the new Feast of Booths, Jesus rose from the grave and has given eternal rest to his people. What a triumphal entry it really was. Glory to God. What happened when Jesus entered Jerusalem? He wept. You didn't know your day of visitation. He now goes down into Jerusalem. He turns over the tables of those selling their wares and their money changers. He cleansed the temple at the end of his ministry the same way he did at the beginning of his ministry. He did it two times. For five days, he teaches the people. But then he goes into an upper room and they have the Passover. And Jesus says, you've done it this way, but now this cup of wine represents the blood I'm going to shed for you. And this bread you've done for years, but this bread now is going to represent my body, which is given for you. As often as you drink this cup and eat this bread, you show my, forth my death till I come. But one of you will betray me. Is it I? Is it I? Who is it, Lord? Who is it? They didn't understand. The one to whom I dip this bread and the sop and give will betray me. Judas takes a big gulp and out the door goes, I don't think for a moment the disciples had a clue what was going on. Where is he going? Jesus knew. He goes and sells out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 
And then the scripture says that they sang a hymn, they go to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus goes down the Kedron Valley, and there he enters into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He asks his disciples, watch with me for a moment. Watch with me for an hour. He takes Peter and James and John and goes a little further in the garden. He prays, not once, not twice, but three times that the cup might pass from him. What cup? The cup of God's outpoured wrath upon the sins of this world. He who knew no sin became sin, and Jesus literally drank in the drug, the drags, if you will, of the sins of all of humanity. Three times he called his disciples asleep, and he asked them to awake. And that last prayer he prayed through. His heart was broken to the point he was sweating as if though it were drops of blood. His heart was so broken over the agony of coming face to faith with sin. The God-man, the man, the God who created the universe and holds it together was at a foreign place in his life. We know that because he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. It's crying out to death. Why? He was at a foreign place in his life. He who had never experienced sin became sin. You talk about humiliation. <clears throat> he gets up and here comes Judas. There he is. Jesus said, whom you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Here they are with their lanterns and their staves and their swords, army coming after him. And Jesus said, I am he. And they all fell backwards. He said, I am. The same God that Mo met Moses in the burning bushes, the same God standing right there in the form of Jesus Christ. I am he. And Jesus said, no man comes and takes my life. I give it. Freely I give it. Freely I lay it down. And freely I will pick it back up again. They took Jesus Christ out and they whipped him and they beat him profusely. His blood splattered with blood, his back splattered with blood. We know the story. Then he picked up that cross, the horizontal part, where he had carried it to Golgotha Skull, a place called Mount Calvary. Weakened from no sleep, weakened from no food, and weakened because of blood that had already been spilt. He stumbled under the weight of the cross. Simon the Cyrene, an African man, had helped him carry it. And then they put those two crosses, the vertical and the horizontal together, nailed him upon that cross with the crown of thorns in his head and his back beaten and thugged it down into the ground. And there the Son of God is, suspended between heaven and earth. May I assure you something? The cross is the power of God. Amen. The cross is is where the power of God is manifest. The cross is important to Christianity. The cross is important to me. The cross is a sign of the cross. To me, it's a piece of jewelry that's simply worn around the neck. To others, it's, to an architect, it's a symbol that you place on a church building. Uh, to the scholar, it's a conversation that gives us deeper intellectual thinking. The cross to the preacher is a sermon filling the need of the hour or for eternity. To the skeptic, the cross is superstition, but oh, how it still troubles the mind. To the Roman mind, it's an instrument of death, an instrument of torment, a tool of destruction. To Constantine, it was a sign to go conquer, of taking defeat and turning it into victory. To Paul the Apostle, it was a symbol of his salvation and his roadmap to glory. To Mary, it was a memory of agony and piercing of her own soul. 
uh, to the motley crew at Golgotha. It was a holiday. It was carnal. It was unholy. And it was a horrible day. To the other thief at the door of perdition, it was a horrible and a terrible place of everlasting punishment because he turned down the one dying on the cross. To the other thief, it was a door to paradise, a place of fulfillment, a place of joy, a place of salvation, a place to miss hell and to gain heaven. And to Jesus, it was God's payment for sin. His love demonstrated in full for every eye to see and for every eye to behold. And to the multitude of millions of sinful people, it's a symbol of our hope. It's an object of our faith, a means to love, and the only way to have peace with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the glory. Thank God for the cross. It's more than wood. It's more than a symbol. It's more than anything. It is our way and our price to salvation. Now, friend, the crucifixion was not a pretty thing. Have you ever been pricked by a rose bush? Or have you ever been pricked by a thorny palm tree? We had a big old palm tree in our backyard. That thing was beautiful until the hurricane got it. It was one long stout coming up and five coming out this way. I mean, that thing, it was about yay tall when we moved in. Several years later, we had to get an extension ladder to get up and cut the, the fawns out of it. Well, you let one of those thorns, oh, man, you'd see stars. And it lasted for days, the pain of it. Remember, that's just one thorn. But Jesus bore the thorns in the skull from the crown that deeply went into his. Have you ever, been, have you ever tried dragging a wooden a wooden cross or a wooden beam. A few weeks ago, I moved a 200-pound table saw from the front of my house to the back part of the shed. I'm in pretty good shape for the shape I'm in. But I was huffing and puffing. I finally had to get a dolly to get it back there. And then to pick that thing up and put it inside was almost unbearable. Can you imagine carrying the weight of the world through a cross that Jesus Christ himself did? Consider the weight of the cross. The weight of the sins of the world was heavy burden. Have you been humiliated lately? I mean, really embarrassed? The shame and embarrassment of humiliating experience is dreadful to say the least. You ever stepped on a nail? You ever stepped on a briar? Matter of fact, you ever been stung by a bee in the bottom of the foot? That's painful. But what's it like to have nails driven through your hands and nail driven through your feet? Can you imagine the tremendous pain of the body? Consider the excruciating pain of a nail to a cross, the unending pain, the flesh ripping, the agony. The cross was roughly hooed down into, into to the, to the earth, and there it was rocking back and forth until it got its equilibrium. The crucifixion was not a pretty thing, nor was it fashionable, nor was it, was it, was it popular. But we have good news of the resurrection to share. But the cross was Jesus to bear and his to bear alone. But the resurrection... Is for all of us to enjoy and to draw strength and salvation from in this room and under the sound of my voice today. Jesus was crucified on the cross. He bore the sins of the world in his body. We remember that today. We celebrate that today. There's hope in the world today and every day. Jesus was crucified. He was buried, but thank God the grave could not hold him down. I so am so grateful. You know, a lot of people, not to be ugly, but a lot of people wear a crucifix with Christ on the cross. I don't like them. I'd rather wear an empty tomb. He ain't on that cross, Bubba. Amen. I'd rather wear an empty tomb. Yeah. <laughs> that speaks more volumes to me than a crucifix, to be honest. I'm, if you got one, I'm not cutting you down. Don't misunderstand me. I close with this. I share this quite often in funerals because it blesses my heart so much. They crucified Jesus because he claimed to be the Son of God. 
He came out of the grave because indeed he was and is the Son of God. The stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let the disciples in. And when the stone was rolled away and they looked in, they noticed that the grave clothes that Jesus had been buried in, he evaporated right out of them. You could just see the form of his body. He just evaporated out. But he took the time to take the napkin wrapped about his head. He took the time to fold it properly and lay it to the side. Why? Why? In biblical days, if a person was at a meal eating at a, at a, at a house or a hotel or a restaurant, wherever it may be, if the person was eating, they had a napkin, obviously. And once they finished their meal, if they were done, they would wipe their hands, they would clean their mouth, and they'd just throw the napkin down, food on the table or not. The host would come by and say, oh, they're gone. So they'd move the table, clean it up for somebody else. But if the host or hostess came by and they saw a napkin folded, laying to the side, whether there was any food on the table or not, the host and hostess say, oh, the napkins folded, which is a sign they are not here, but they are coming back. When the disciples looked in and saw that folded napkin about a head all by itself folded, they said, he's not here, but he is coming back. Hallelujah. That is the hope of the church. This same Jesus that ascended shall in like manner descend again. And the same prophetic word that told us about his first coming is the same prophetic word telling us about his second coming. And the same prophetic word that told us he's going to ride a donkey in Jerusalem is the same prophetic word that said he's coming back for church. And the same prophetic word that said he's going to die for the sins of the world and rise from the grave is the same word that said it's going to happen. He's coming again. I believe the book. 